You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX, Berkeley. My name is Eric Sathy, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we talk to UC graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Peter Close from the Department of Integrative Biology, who studies beak morphology. Good morning, Peter. Morning, Eric. So I said you study beak morphology. What is morphology? Ah, okay. Well, um, morphology is, I mean, just to, to put it simply, is the, the shape of things. So for me, as you mentioned, I study beaks. So I'm interested in the shape of beaks and some of the subtle nuances that we see in those shapes. How are beaks different from each other? A lot of things have what, uh, you know, we, we typically call beaks. Easiest one to think of are birds. But, you know, you can also think of squids have have beak structures. Um, turtles are the one of the, the study groups that, that I'm interested in. So I, you know, I focus on tetrapods. These are things with four legs. So we can immediately throw squid <laughs> out of yeah. out of the group. But your your question of how are beaks different between turtles and birds? The beaks are fairly similar. That uh, they they take the the front part of their their mouth, if you will. You basically lose all the teeth and throw keratin over it. Keratin being the structure that you know we we have in our hair and our nails. So they're they're using bone and keratin to form these toothless uh, you know toothless structures in their mouth to to acquire food and and do other things. And so, you know, there's a lot of different turtles. There's a lot of different birds. Are beaks different within turtles and different within birds? Like how are uh, beaks shaped differently within a group. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, the classic example that we biologists go to would be Darwin's finches. So these are finches. Well, I think they're technically tanagers, if I remember correctly, that uh, a population made their way to the Galapagos Islands uh, over a million years ago. And through the course of evolutionary time, um, their beaks adapted to the, the various range of diets and that were easy to exploit on the islands. So bigger, thicker beaks for crushing nuts and maybe smaller, finer beaks for uh, picking out insects and, and smaller things. And these are, these are observations that Darwin made when he traveled to the Galapagos in, in the mid-1800s. Um, with turtles, yeah, we see a, a range of beak shapes as well. Again, larger, thicker beaks for crushing snails and clams and potentially smaller or finer, maybe more serrations on different beaks for eating a variety of other herbivorous uh, prey or other meaty, you know, maybe carrion sort of food items. So there are serrated beaks? Yes. Yeah. So within turtles, um, I, I think, yeah, we have we have lots of serrations that, that can be noted. I think the easiest place to look would be a, on a tortoise beak. They're all herbivorous. And yeah, they have serrations on, on the outside of, of their beaks. The presumption is that it aids in, in food uh, gathering. Okay, so herbivory, they're eating a lot of leaves and plant material. How do serrations help with processing that food? Sure. So, I mean, serrations, um, just like a steak knife, help to cut through whatever it is that, that we're talking about. So a steak, <laughs> in the case of a knife or plants in the case of serrations on a bill or beak. Just uh, having that, that roughened edge 
allows for just easier cutting um, when you're trying to break off a piece of the food and get it into your into your gullet. <laughs> yeah. And so I know that you're interested in living animals and you're also interested in fossils, things that may have gone extinct and change over time. How do you use both fossil and living or more modern specimens in your research? So I think using a combination of the modern record and the fossil record, you get this this dual view that information that can be gathered from your modern turtles and tortoises, um, you can take that back to the fossil record and and you know analyze your fossils in particular ways. Similarly, the fossil record helps to inform us with focusing on the modern record and gives us some insight into how things have changed over time. So it, it works both ways. That um, my, my research here at Berkeley is focused primarily on modern turtles. And I'm trying to understand the, the shape of turtle beaks across a relatively large group of, within turtles. And so I'm scanning, CT scanning, hundreds of turtle skulls with the idea that those techniques those analytical methods, I'll also apply to, to the fossil record. And in some ways, uh, as I mentioned, they'll both be informing each other. Okay, and so you mentioned CT scanning. What? How do you use CT scanning in a research setting? Sure. Uh, CT scanning is essentially x-rays. You know, as, as an x-ray is a slice through uh, whatever object you're looking at, be it the human body or a turtle skull in my case. So it's a two-dimensional image. If you take a series of those images at different depths through said object, that gives you the ability to, to reconstruct in three dimensions all the inner workings of that object. So the turtle skulls that I'm looking at, you know, we're taking uh, at least a thousand X-ray images through a, a given skull. And, and each of these skulls, they're, they're pretty small. Um, no more than a, a couple inches uh, in length. And using these you know, thousand or so images with some software, we can combine that together to, to generate a 3D model. That 3D model can be used to, to highlight certain morphologies, some, some of these shapes. Um, but it also allows us to go into the inner workings of the bone and look at things that you can't just, you can't see from, from an external view of, the skull. That's awesome. So it's sort of a non-invasive way to look inside of these bones. Yeah, most most definitely. There's there there's no destructive sampling. Uh, the skull that goes in, um, it's the same skull that we get out, you know, with a slight dose of radiation because that's what X-rays are. But that aside, um, yeah, the, the the product that goes in is the same thing that comes out, and then we just have the the data to to manipulate. So so there's no no harm to the to the specimens. That's really interesting. So I'd like to now sort of step back and talk about how you got into this field and why you're interested in beaks and morphology, paleontology. I mean, I got into paleontology at a very very young age. I think most kids grow up with, you know, with dinosaur toys, 
I, I certainly had my share. I had a lot of dinosaur <laughs> toys. <laughs> and I, I think that's that's a common uh, place for, for kids to get into science is just through through dinosaurs, just because they're these fantastical beasts that we don't have today, excluding birds, <laughs> that we, we don't have today that uh, just conjure up a lot of imaginative uh, pictures. So starting there, I, you know, moved into visiting museums and zoos as a kid. So I grew up in San Francisco, visiting the San Francisco Zoo and the California Academy of Sciences all the time. And with my parents and my teachers, just through elementary, middle, and high school, just really fostered this, uh, this love for science. Fast forward to college, I went to Montana State University, and, and there they've got lots of dinosaurs in, in the ground. So this dinosaur-loving kid got to continue that going to, to university. And I did lots of dinosaur digs, and yeah, that, that just kept me, kept me going in the science so after university, fast forward a few years, um, getting into research, that's where I, yeah, just was trying to continue in paleontology, looking for questions that hadn't been asked yet. And, and that's where, uh, you know, I found that people were working on beaks, but primarily bird beaks. And I started thinking that these questions could be applied to turtles, which, you know, not many people have done yet. So what is a fossil dig like oh uh yeah fossil digs are <laughs> it complex <laughs> okay complex and simple at the same time it's 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 one of these these interesting things because i mean at the heart of it you just have a, a group of people out in the middle of nowhere digging in the dirt i mean that's that's like the the barest bones simplification of it you're you know you're going to these areas with a particular goal in mind to look for uh, certain fossils, maybe they're dinosaur. Um, and if that's the case, then you need to be looking for rocks of the right age and rocks of the right depositional setting. And if you find those, those things aligning, yeah, the, the potential for dinosaurs or, or whatever your fossils may be, um, the potential to find them is, goes up. But yeah, beyond that, what is a dinosaur dig like? I mean, it, it's also a lot of fun. I mean, that's that's the reason why we all do it is, you know, you get to, in this day and age, you get to cut the cord from technology, kind of be out in the middle of nowhere with a group of people, hopefully, that you like. <laughs> <laughs> you enjoy their company in some respects. And, um, and, you know, you're all pointed towards that goal. So there's this team spirit as well. And, uh yeah, just you know, if you're if you like digging in the dirt like I used to do as a kid, then there's that level of fun too. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where's the coolest place that you've been on a fossil dig? Um, I think the yeah, some of the the last places I've been to. So uh, last year, uh, I got to go to Santa Rosa Island, which is uh, part of the Channel Islands off of the coast of Southern California. Okay. There, I was working with the Santa Barbara Museum of Natural History. And uh, we were working to, to get a sea cow out of the ground. A uh, sea cow is like a manatee or a dugong. So, yeah, just like I had never been on a boat to a fossil dig. I've been on boats before, but not with that intent in, in mind. So that was new, just knowing that I got to do a dig and around me, like the ocean was in every direction. So that was, that was new and, and exciting few years before that uh, i got the chance to go to mongolia 
and you know pull out some protoceratops there wow yeah <laughs> so that's pro- awesome protoceratops is like a triceratops but a much smaller version and doesn't have the, the cool big horns on it but it does have the frill and and a beak on it as well wow yeah <laughs> when you go on a fossil dig do you go sort of expecting to find something in particular or do you go to these sediments and expect to find something in it but not necessarily knowing what it depends depends on the dig i think uh many of the digs that i've been on we were going to places we knew there there were going to be fossils present you know whether through previous excavations to that same area and oftentimes you know we'll get alerted to fossils being present because somebody else not a paleontologist at all just happened to be walking in their property in montana or going on a hike somewhere they stumble across some bones and call it up to to their local museum and it turns out to be something so so that's one way that that i've been called out another way is just by prospecting and so that's it's a fancy term for just kind of wandering, <laughs> wandering the, the wilds of, of at least the American West. So I did a dig in New Mexico. And like we, we knew based off geologic maps uh, where the rocks were going to be that we wanted. But we had no idea what was going to be out there. And it's entirely possible that we could have come up with nothing. Thankfully, we didn't. <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean, so so the first few days we're just prospecting, just just wandering, with a plan where you know we're we're approaching the landscape very tactfully, um, looking for for areas of erosion. That's that's how some of these fossils just come to light, and just start picking around once we find those, and hopefully we find more. And in that case, we did. How hard is it to find fossils in the ground? Uh, <laughs> It's, it takes practice. Let's let's put it that way. You know, the, the first time that I ever went out, I, I was between my freshman and sophomore years of college, and um, I was on my very first dinosaur dig, and I had very little idea what I was doing. I think I was picking up lots of rocks that I thought had the shape of a bone, and I was passing them off to the, to the person in charge. You know, is this a bone? Is this a bone? And... Oftentimes they would look at it really quick, like take a one second glance and then throw it over their shoulder <laughs> and just tell me, just, they, they just told me to keep going. And, and so, yeah, I mean, when you're first starting, I think it can be a little difficult to, to get, you know, what sometimes we just call the eye. And, uh, with practice, you, you learn to pick up on shape and texture. Sometimes it's even just a color difference. Um, that's enough to, to tell you that there's a fossil here. And again, you know, like just, just being able to pick up a fossil, that's one thing. After that point where you're starting to, to trace it back into the hillside where you're, you're looking for that buried bone at that point, it's really just luck. Okay. Luck that that animal was buried properly, that uh, it hasn't eroded away into nothing, into dust. And yeah, just all, all of these factors coming together to just to be lucky to, to find something. Yeah. Yeah. So you said that your first dig was between your freshman and sophomore year. Yeah. How did you get involved with paleontology to begin with? Yeah. So so I had you know gotten to Montana State 
I think in that first semester, I was just taking my normal course load, and um, I just happened to be in a class. One of my other students was telling me that he had started volunteering at the Museum of the Rockies. Um, Museum of the Rockies is Montana State's preeminent fossil institution. Lots of dinosaurs come through there. And I just thought that was a great opportunity. Why, you know, I should put myself as a volunteer. And that's what I ended up doing. So volunteering, doing the, the preparation work on fossils that were coming back from the field, getting them cleaned up and, and ready to study. From there, just meeting people in the museum, meeting the professors in, you know, in my department, that's where I got the opportunity to go out on a dig and just put myself out there like, hey, I've, I've got a couple weeks of time. Can I go out into the field with you? And someone thankfully said yes. That's great. So sort of maybe some advice that you might give is just to sort of put yourself out there, contact people if you want to get involved with their research. Most people seem to be interested in talking about their research at the minimum. Oh, most definitely. I mean, and that's that's something from my days as an undergraduate all the way to, to where I am now as a grad student. It can be a little daunting if you're a shy person to, to put yourself out there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I found that, that oftentimes you get positive results from that, even if it's just a, you know, response of, you know, I don't have any active research going on, but, you know, I can direct you to the next person. And that's, that's often, you know, the responses that, that I've had, you know, if it starts out negative, there's, there's always a but, and here's a positive to it. And, and oftentimes, you know, I think, I think people are pretty positive to talk about their research, like you said. Or if it's the opportunities to go on a dig, you know, like if the conditions are right, yeah, they, they can invite you out there. So, yeah, you just have to be willing to ask that question. Put yourself out there, send an email, make a phone call, <laughs> and, and just, just talk to people. That seems to be key. Yeah, most definitely. So we've talked a little bit about your path into getting into paleontology, some of the things that you've done in the past, and we briefly talked about how you got into turtles and how they have beaks and you wanted to study the beaks of turtles. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit more about turtles, sort of why do you think they're interesting? Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a, that's a really tricky question. Cause I, and turtles are, are just interesting from, from a lot of different directions. Um, to step away from the, the beak side of things. I mean, the fact that they have this shell, the, the, the shell that's just so iconic for turtles, the notion of how did that evolve, the relative placement of their shoulder within that shell is something that we don't see in, in other organisms. So you're telling me that the turtle's shoulder is inside of the shell, which means it's inside of its rib cage? Yeah, yeah. So, so if you think about us as humans, your shoulder blade sits on the outside of your rib cage. It's firmly attached to your back via muscles. Turtles, their, their shell um, is composed of ribs and other contributions of, of bone. But those same, that same shoulder blade is actually inside the shell, which they're the only group of organisms that do that. I mean, that makes turtles interesting right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, there's, there's been a whole suite of, of researchers focusing on that from uh, just from the developmental standpoint. So looking at how turtle embryos 
grow and, and how that configuration of shoulder blade to ribs changes. There's also researchers that have looked at it from a fossil record, looking at specimens through geologic time and how that configuration has changed. And yeah, so, so I mean, there's plenty of people that, that, that are tackling this question. Yeah. Yeah. So we've established that turtles are interesting and you're interested in beaks. Could you tell me a little bit more about turtle beaks specifically? Sure. Uh, so there, there are hundreds and hundreds of species of turtle around the world. Um, tortoises, terrapins, those, those are all included under the term turtle. So for my research, I'm focusing on a smaller subset of that, that group, uh, a family known as Imididae. You could also call them the New World Pond Turtles because they're primarily here you know, in the Americas, North America, South America, and the Caribbean. There are some exceptions. There, there's two species that, that are found in the Mediterranean, and that's a, that's a little weird. But uh, primarily, they're here in the New World. So, so this, this group of pond turtles, they occupy a range of habitats. Um, so as I mentioned, the terrapins are in this group. They live in brackish water, kind of this interface between salty marine ocean water and fresh, clean river water, so kind of deltas. A lot of the, this group, they're semi-aquatic, so they can be found in rivers and streams and lakes and ponds. But we also have box turtles in this group. So things that aren't tortoises, but they are primarily terrestrial. And then I think I mentioned before that uh, some of these turtles eat harder things like snails and bivalves. There's definitely turtles in this group that are strict carnivores. Um, there are some that are strict herbivores. And so, so we see this, this variety of diets and, and that all of these factors relate into what their beak shape looks like. Okay. So we've been talking about turtles and your research on them here at Berkeley. And I know that you got a master's degree before coming to Berkeley where you worked on paleontology, but not on turtles. I also know that your former advisor does work on turtles. So why didn't you work on turtles when you were there? Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, yeah, so so my master's advisor, who happens to be a Cal graduate, he got his PhD here. He uh, yeah, so he works on sea turtles and sea turtle fossils, and he works on plenty of modern turtles as well. So I mean, that would have been the perfect in path to to working on turtles and setting me up for what I'm doing here. And you know, I think he he has definitely said it. To, to many people that he he doesn't push turtles on his students like that is something near and dear to his heart but he wants he wants his students to explore their own questions so when I came to, to Cal State Fullerton I approached him asking to do a, a bird project because that's that's where my first interest after dinosaurs of course. Uh, that's where my first interest in paleontology really started coming together um, was looking at birds and so in his lab and and the museums in Southern California and, and eventually up to here at Berkeley, I started cobbling together this data set of seabirds along coastal California, exploring about uh, 20 to, to 10 million years of, of geologic time. So, so in that window of time, you know, I had this assemblage of seabird fossils and just looking at the numbers, 
running statistics, I was able to see certain changes in the community composition um, of these seabirds. So, so that's that's what I did for my masters, um, and yeah, it just it didn't involve turtles whatsoever. So it, it's it, it's just funny that uh, once I got to Berkeley, once I started exploring turtles, I think I I think I saw some of of what my advisor saw in just the appeal of turtles yeah. and, and it, it definitely drew me in and uh, I haven't been able to give it up. Yeah, they'll get you. Yeah, most definitely. So I know that between your undergraduate program and your master's program, you did some work in industry? I, yeah, I did. I did. So <laughs> it, it between my finishing my bachelor's and starting my master's, I actually took a decade away from from academia, okay, which is a lot of time. And uh, anytime I talk to students, I, I advise them a decade might be a bit much. Um, I think if I had to do over again, I, I probably wouldn't have spent that much time away from school. But uh, during that time, I did stay active in paleontology, and for for a big chunk of that decade, I worked in environmental uh, mitigation consulting. So here in the United States, we've got many federal laws, so like the Environmental Protection Act, that protect resources. So, you know, with, with the Environmental Protection Act, we think of, you know, a lot of biological things, uh, in, uh, endangered species and endangered plants, and that definitely is included in, in the EPA. But it also covers non-renewable resources, of which uh, human artifacts and paleontological fossils are included. And then there are other regulations that have come about since the EPA, like the Paleontological Resources Protection Act, that all of these rules and regulations go in and and ultimately tell, you know, people that are looking to construct houses, transmission lines, uh, any sort of infrastructure, you know, before you can start digging, slow down and Let's let's actually look at the area that you're proposing to work on for, uh, in my case, fossils. But as I said, these these rules also protect various endangered and protected species and and other things. So my role as a mitigation paleontologist was, uh, <laughs> I think, the easy way to describe it is I was uh, saving fossils from bulldozers. Is, okay, is one way. <laughs> so that it paints a very vivid picture of being on site as the construction equipment is clearing out an area and in a safe way, rushing in, scooping out the fossils and getting out before, before getting squished. But on top of that, I also got to survey and basically like I was doing as a prospector um, with these, these fossil digs that I would go to an area before construction even started and just hike up and down uh, the area looking for fossils as as a means to potentially guide the construction equipment, you know, maybe you want to avoid this area just because we have something really sensitive here and, you know, they can continue working without disturbing what's what's already in the ground. I can see how the field work that you did as an undergrad really sort of gave you the experience and skills to do this industry job. Most definitely. Um, yeah, between the classes I took as a geology major so learning stratigraphy between that and yeah all the field work i had done throughout the course of my my undergrad degree 
yeah, it really set me up for this career I had no idea existed until I got out of school. I had no idea that mitigation was a, a job that was possible for me, that uh, all of these skills that I, that I gathered were just tailor-made for this, this industry. And yeah, and I, and I was able to stay there for many years. Yeah, that's great. So we're just about out of time. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the public? Um, I mean, I think I think we we kind of touched on it, but I'll reiterate it for for those that are interested in paleontology or just research generally, and and you're not certain how to get into it. Um, yeah, I would just say just just be bold and ask the question. If you're meeting somebody at a party and their research interests you, just ask them how'd you get started. If you're coming across a paper or like a TED talk. You know, some, something to that degree. So you haven't met this person face to face. You can just send them an email, and yeah, you know, you you may not receive a response in some cases. That's okay, but there there will be those times that you do get some some sort of feedback, and you never know where that's going to take you. All right, thank you, Peter. You're listening to the Graduates on KALX Berkeley. My name is Eric Sathy, and I was joined today on the show by Peter Close from the Department of Integrative Biology, talking about his research on beak morphology. We will be back in two